Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Liz Enriquez. Liz's episode is the latest in a series of podcast shows on women in real estate. In the coming weeks, I'll be interviewing successful female real estate investors to help encourage and inspire more women to get into real estate. Liz is the founder of Ambitious Adulting, a website to help Canadian millennials understand personal finances so that they can save money, earn more, and reduce stress about money. As the name of her website suggests, Liz is quite ambitious herself. After paying off her university tuition at age 22, she saved over $50,000 and bought a house at age 24. At age 26, Her net worth grew to six figures, and at age 27, she quit her government job after making $10,000 in one month through her various income streams. In my interview with Liz, we discussed saving a sizable down payment, the Hamilton real estate market, and building your side hustle. Without further ado, here's my interview with Liz Enriquez. Hi Liz, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? Pretty good, thanks. You have quite a remarkable story. Talk about your upbringing and the role money has played in your life. Yeah, so I moved to Canada when I was five. I was living in Mexico. And when I moved, we I didn't really know what was happening. You know, you're five years old. You don't really know what's going on. You just follow your parents and do what they tell you to do, really. So that was an an interesting time in my life, but we were living in a two bedroom apartment and there was five of us. And so that really kind of cemented how I saw money and how I spent money because I always saw my parents be really frugal. We were always going to garage sales. We always wore secondhand clothing. My mom made a lot of my clothing, which is cool now, not at the time, but (laughs) yeah. So I saw my parents just really be really, really careful with money and that really helped throughout my life because I took on that mentality and to this day I have that mentality even though I don't need to buy secondhand clothes or go to garage sales or be really thrifty like I love it now I've got like a thrill finding a good deal and I also just try to be minimalist and not buy things so that really just watching my parents be really careful with money cemented how I grew up spending and associating money I'm the same way as you. I mean, growing up, my parents didn't go on extravagant trips or anything like that, but they instilled the importance of home ownership in me at a young age. And my parents owned houses all growing up. Even when they split up, uh, we managed, both my mother and father managed to own properties. So certainly growing up in a household with that kind of mentality when it came to money affected me. And I guess it affected you as well, your upbringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all I wanted was to own a house. My parents didn't really emphasize the need to own a house. They always just kind of assumed that's what you did. But 
we didn't, you know, move into our first house until I was like 13 or 14. Before that, we lived in a two-bedroom apartment. So it was always a big deal for me to want to live in my own space and to have my own house. And that was a big sense of accomplishment. So I was really motivated to get that done. Great. And we'll definitely get into that later on in the conversation because I certainly want to hear about that. So many millennials struggle with student debt, but you graduated debt-free all on your own. How did you accomplish this? What did paying for your education on your own teach you? Yes. So I did graduate. I graduated from McMaster University in 2014, and I took such a unconventional and really confusing path. Like the timeline of my education is just so random, but it all worked out. So what happened was I uh, went to school, started school in 2009, and mostly I paid for school through a combination of scholarships, bursaries, grants, and working full-time. So the first two years of school, I had paid through bursaries and grants, and I got a lot of them because I had dropped my math class in grade 12 and spent that period in the guidance counselor's office applying for grants, uh, writing essays for scholarships, and my marks were good, but definitely not amazing. Like, I was, in a, I was an A student, but not enough to, you know, get all these academic awards. So most of my awards actually came from community involvement and just kind of niche essays that I was writing. That really helped. And I got to go to school pretty much on a free ride for first and second year university. And by third and fourth and fifth year, I was working full time in different jobs um, and and co-ops and then going to school part time and doing some independent study as well. So I was able to pay off school and graduate with money in the bank, which isn't common, but I also did sacrifice a lot. I was working a lot. So my social life took a hit and I um, was doing a lot of co-ops and just nonstop work, nonstop work at school and nonstop work at home, but um, it paid off. No, definitely. I'm just curious, did you still manage to keep up your grades during that time when you were work so, working so many hours? Yeah, I did keep some grades high. Definitely got a few scholarships throughout. I did get honor rolls. I, I just didn't get a full ride throughout the whole time. But my marks were always good. I, I remember getting my first C though, and that was devastating to me because I had never seen a C on my report card. But I remember just hearing everyone say that these get degrees. And I was like, oh, okay, I kind of like that saying. I could never get another one. It was just too devastating, but I did get one. And yeah, that's a good lesson learned, I guess. But I really like your point about how you don't have to be a straight A student to get bursaries and other financial assistance with school. So certainly, you know, there are options out there in terms of websites where you can look up bursaries and other financial awards. So be sure to check that out if you're going to be going into college or university, or even if you're in college or university, you could perhaps get some extra money uh, without having to work a crazy schedule to pay for school. Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, as you mentioned, you graduated with money in the bank and you managed to save a sizable down payment of $50,000 which is quite impressive for a first-time home bar. How did you do this, and what tips do you have for those struggling to save? Yeah, so it really made a huge difference that I was working full-time. 
while I was in school and going to school part-time. At the time, it seemed like a really unconventional thing to do because all of my friends were in school full-time and I switched degrees a few times. I took time off to travel. I lived in a different province for a while. Like I was really all over the place. And so I felt like I just didn't really know what I was doing, but I've managed to save a lot by working at, at a higher paying job than minimum wage. So I had a co-op at the city of Hamilton. So that made a big difference. At the time, I was making about $18 an hour, which was pretty good considering minimum wage was around $11 or $12 an hour. And so I was saving a lot and still living like a student. I was living in a basement apartment. I had roommates. And so my costs were super low and my roommates were amazing. We would actually split the cost of groceries sometimes because we all realized that all four of us didn't need lettuce, like separate lettuce. So we, you know, common things like that, we would just work together and pull our money together. Some of the main tips are, you know, working. Obviously, you can't just rely on OSAP to pay for your life and your schooling. Keeping your costs low. I always took the bus everywhere I went because the bus was included in my in my tuition. We had a bus pass included. Walked everywhere, biked everywhere. Just really keeping my costs low while I was making money made the bit the biggest difference. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you don't have to. Maybe you don't have to be crazy like me and bike during the winter time sometime. But certainly, transportation and food are the second and third uh, most costly expenses for most people. So if you can save 15, 20% on them, that's an extra $50, $100 a month you could free up and that's money that you could put towards saving for a goal like a down payment. Oh, that's the other thing. I was investing. So I started investing when I was 18. I did not know what I was doing properly. So I did invest and it made a difference eventually when I took out my down payment. But to be honest, I wasn't saving with a specific goal. I didn't know that I was going to use all this money for a down payment. I just used, I had different accounts. I thought one was for traveling, one was for future housing, one was for retirement. So I was saving, but I wasn't really focused and strategic at all. I was just saving the leftovers of what I was making. But with enough discipline, because I was saving consistently and enough time, because I had money you know, in my accounts for over six, seven years, it made a big difference. Yeah, certainly coming up with a down payment like that is no easy feat. So kudos to you. Thank you. Some millennials are choosing to rent instead of buy. They're discouraged by the high home prices in big cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Why shouldn't young folks give up on the dream of home ownership? In my opinion, I honestly believe that if you have a goal, you can make it happen. Like I changed my mindset from cha- from thinking I can't do this, I can't afford it, to thinking what are the steps I need to take to afford this? Or what are some actions that I can do to be able to reach this goal? Because then, then it changes your brain into coming up with solutions and looking for options and ways to get to your goal versus immediately shutting off and thinking, I can never afford a house, I can never buy it. If you think like that, that's, it's never going to happen because you're not looking for solutions. I never once even thought that I couldn't afford a house. I knew I could afford it. I knew I could do it. And it wasn't immediate. I had to save and take some action steps and cut back on things and make some more money. But I knew that if I really wanted a house, I could get a house. Think really just if you want to buy a house, 
or you know you have financial goals you figuring out what steps you need to take to get there and renting is totally fine for people as well like if renting makes more sense for you if you're not looking to settle down in a specific place if you don't want to save for a down payment and would rather use money on something else that makes you happy that's fine too. Whatever your goals are, if it's renting and then using your money to invest in something else, or if it's buying a down payment, I think it's totally possible for millennials, you know, one, with the right attitude and two, with the right strategies that might include getting another job. Like I have had multiple jobs at the same time. There was a point where I was working three jobs and for three years I had a side hustle on top of my full-time job. So there was a lot of things I had to do to make it happen. Yes, and certainly I think goal setting plays an important role as well because you don't want to get too fixated on the number at the end of the day. For example, people sometimes hear, oh, they need like a $50,000 down payment or they need to save a million dollars for retirement and they just throw their hands up there and think, why should I bother? But when you actually break it down into smaller steps and figure out exactly how much money you need to put aside from each paycheck, then suddenly the impossible seems possible. So I certainly find that's helpful when you break it into mini goals and celebrate those accomplishments once you get closer to reaching your ultimate goal of saving a down payment if you want to be a homeowner. Mm -hmm. And it's a gradual process. Like I started saving and investing when I was 18 years old and I didn't buy my house until I was 24. So for all those years in between, it was just constant saving, constantly investing, and just slowly but surely, I got $50,000. And I'm just curious, did you take the safe route in terms of investing? You didn't invest in something exciting like Bitcoin or anything like that, did you? No, I was in mutual funds because that's what the bank told me when I walked in at 18 years old and I didn't learn more about different investing options until I was 24 and took out all that money to buy the house. And so I was starting from scratch. I had very little money left after I bought the house. So that's when I really started to do more research into the stock market, ETFs, robo-advising, real estate. I didn't really research Bitcoin because I, you know, I was already overwhelmed with researching all the other things. So yeah, I was pretty safe in mutual funds. No, I was just joking. I, I certainly wouldn't be putting my money into Bitcoin if I'm going to be buying a house in the near future. That's I sure. know. Yeah, it's something interesting to look into, but not for me right now. Great. So that's actually a perfect segue to my next question. At just 24 years old, you bought a house. How did you accomplish this impressive feat? What encouraged you to buy a home at such a young age and how can others follow in your footsteps? It was a whirlwind. To buy a house at 24 years old as a single female at the time was honestly the biggest crash course in personal finance that I got because I had no idea what I was doing. I bought the house mainly because I had just moved out of my ex-boyfriend's house and so I was in this weird transition period where I didn't really know what my next steps in life was going to be. I thought, okay, if I need to rent for a while, I still need to furnish everything because everything was at his house. He had all the furniture. So I didn't really have anything. I was starting from scratch. And I looked at a few options and I thought I could rent and, you know, this money isn't going to me. It's no equity. I have to furnish everything and, you know, all that. Or I have some money in the bank and I could just buy the house and not have a lot of money to furnish it, but just slowly build it back up. But if I go with that option, I have some equity in the house, I have my foot in the game. And the real estate market in Hamilton, where I live was just getting so hot. I thought, okay, this is the time to do it. Really, I sat down and did some spreadsheets because I love spreadsheets. 
and I, you know, looked at different options on how I wanted my life to look, my time horizons, did I want to live in Hamilton, did I want to live downtown, what were some prices in the area for houses versus rent, and at the end of the day, I threw my spreadsheets that helped me figure out, yes, I wanted to buy a house, and that just felt right for me, so for anyone who's kind of in this situation where they don't know if they want to buy a house or their next steps or if they want to continue renting, if you're handy with spreadsheets, I would suggest making some. And if you're not, there's some free calculators online that might be able to help you or connecting with a financial planner or an advisor or a coach to try to figure out your next steps. But I honestly think that laying out your numbers and laying out your values and your goals will help you figure out your, your next steps and also help you figure out how much money you need to save or how much money you need to have for your certain goal. Yes, because certainly home ownership is also emotional, but it's a financial decision as well, perhaps the single biggest financial decision of your lifetime. So I certainly think it's worth spending a few minutes to crunch some numbers. Mm -hmm. Not only are you a homeowner, you're also a landlord. How has that experience been? Yeah, so I bought my house and I was fixing it up by myself. I was painting. I was doing a lot of work on the house by myself. And I have three brothers. So my one brother would come over almost every single day and help me on the house. I didn't have a lot of money left over after I bought it to pay for help. So I just asked my friends, my family, anyone who was free to come help fix it up with me. So he was just spending a lot of time here. And I get along really well with all my brothers. They're my best friends. We all grew up in the same room together. We all grew up in close quarters and we're Mexican. So naturally that family ties are super ingrained in us. So he was working on my house a lot with me and he works 10 minutes away. So I just said, why don't you just move in? And it all worked out. He's been living here with me for for a while now, over a year. I did live here by myself for a while and it was actually really boring. I was bored living alone because I come from such a big family and I love being surrounded by people. So, you know, we made our agreements, how to clean. It was pretty much like having roommates again in university, which I also loved. So I am his landlord. I do, you know, have to shovel and do all the landlord stuff. We take turns, but it really comes down to me. And we haven't had any issues. I did get a contract made up. I'm trying to do everything kind of by the book. But I, I don't think it'll ever come to that. And if it does, we just have to go to the court of my parents' house and I think <laughs> we can resolve that. So it's been pretty easy. I would rather have someone I know well as a housemate if I had to have one. You know, I couldn't have asked for a better tenant than my brother. And I'd be curious, are there two separate areas of the house or are you actually living in the same quarters and sharing the same kitchen and other areas in the house? Yeah, we share the same everything. It's pretty much just like my family house, a mini version of my family house. But we're both so busy. I rarely see him, even though I want to. Sometimes we have to schedule time to see each other. Yeah, it's just fun because we also get to meal prep. And my house is always in and out of people. Like everyone knows they can come to my house and sleep over. It's kind of like that sh the shame live house without being so sketchy. Mm -hmm. um, do you watch that show? <laughs> no, I'll have to check it out. Okay, well, pretty much it's just this house of all these people who live there. They're all related, but people are always in and out. You never know what's happening. That's kind of like my house. Like I'm always having people over. I always have people sleeping here. Um, if they're visiting from out of town, I'm like, sure, come sleep on my couch. If we have relatives coming in from Mexico, I'm the first house that I offer up. I just love having that buzz of people constantly in and out of the house. But yeah, we share everything. We share um, 
food as well. We'll make a meal plan so that we're optimizing that. So everything's been great so far. No issues. That's great to hear. And I'm just curious, when you purchased your home, did you plan to have like an extra bedroom or two for people to stay over? Was that part of your criteria when you were looking at properties? Kind of. I definitely wanted a spare bedroom and an office. And I got a, I got a three-bedroom home with two bathrooms. So I, it's way more than I need. I remember asking at the bank, like, what happens if I get a roommate? Does that affect the cost of how much I'm allowed to get? And they said, no, we have to use just your income only because it's not guaranteed that you would have an, a roommate. So that's just a little bonus. So that's kind of how I thought as well. Like, okay, I need to buy a house that I can afford on my own. If I get a roommate, that would be a bonus. But if I don't, then I need to make sure that I can pay for this house and not be stretched thin. Yeah, definitely. And uh, people like to call them mortgage helpers, whether it's a roommate or having a tenant. So certainly, you know, if you want to pay down your mortgage sooner than 25 years, or if you kind of have want to have a safety net, if you were ever to lose your job, it certainly helps to have somebody else to help pay the bills around the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. And I like having someone here as well. Like I live in, not that I'm scared of my neighborhood at all, but I live in a pretty busy neighborhood in downtown Hamilton. I've seen some pretty intense stuff that I, and I now have security systems. So I just like having even his energy in the house is helpful. Not that anything would happen necessarily, but just having him around is really good. And that ties into my next question. You live in Hamilton, Ontario, a satellite city of Toronto. Now, Hamilton, I mean, it's kind of had its highs and lows, but why is Hamilton a good place to own real estate right now? Yes, Hamilton. I love Hamilton. People either love Hamilton or hate it. And I've been a Hamilton supporter from day one. I grew up in Burlington and then moved to Hamilton when I went to McMaster. And it's a great place to live because, well, there's so much, it's, there's so much to do here. And it's like a little city without the big city vibe. So the traffic is not as bad as Toronto. It's not as busy, but there is still a lot going on. And we are surrounded by nature, which is amazing because there's trails everywhere. People like trails and a city vibe. Hamilton is definitely the place for them. In terms of buying property, it's way more affordable than Toronto for the houses that like it's double or triple in Toronto what we can buy. And I know a lot of times people think that it's too expensive to live here. And that is true. But compared to Toronto, Vancouver, like people are still getting deals here. It is unfortunate though, because there is a lot of displacement happening, a lot of gentrifying happening. So people are being kind of pushed out of Hamilton. I'm not sure what the solution is, but as a young person, I was able to buy a house because I thought it was pretty affordable. Despite buying the house in like a hot market, there was 11 offers on this house. There was a bidding war. I had to overbid by $40,000. So it was still really intense. But I was able to buy my house, three bedroom, two bathroom house, 1,300 square feet for 240000 So pretty affordable compared to other places in big cities. Yeah, I don't think you could even afford a shoebox condo in Toronto for that kind of price. Yeah, and my house is, it had been recently flipped too. So it had a new roof. 
new windows, new electrical, new plumbing, like totally flipped. So I had to do a little bit of work on it, mainly because the tenants before me had done some cosmetic damage to the house, but I haven't had any issues. Like I haven't had like furnace breakdown or anything major that I've had to put money into. So I think I got a pretty good deal despite, you know, paying more than it was listed for and having to beat out 10 other people. That's great to hear. And I'm just curious, what was your secret to winning the bidding war? Like, what was your strategy going in? Pretty good that you came out ahead in a bidding war with 10 people. Yeah, I mean, I overbid by $40,000. So I don't know how much that had an impact on it. The other thing too, is I was going to go in with no conditions, but my agent at my credit union kind of refused to let me go in without the financing condition. He was like, Liz, that is not a good idea. Please do not go in with no conditions. And at that time, I was like, Brad, which was his name, like, please, like, I need to go in with no conditions. I've I've already lost that on three houses. And he kind of talked me through why the conditions exist and was looking out for my best interest. He said, you know, if something that comes back wrong with the appraisal, you're on the hook for this. Is that really what you want? Like, I only went in with one condition. So I don't know if that also helped with the bidding war. The other thing is that the closing was super fast on my house. So there was like a one week or a week and a half turnaround between the time I put the offer in and the time I had my keys. And I was living on my friend's blow up mattress in his spare house. So I was ready to move ASAP. And I don't know if other bidders were also in the same situation or if they couldn't move for a while until their house sold. So it was kind of the perfect storm for me to have won the bid. That's a great story. Thanks. (laughs) Although at the time it was really rough, but it all worked out. You know, we all have to go, most of us go through little blimps in our life. And that was my, one of my blimps and I came out, the grass is greener. So it's all good now. And it's a great point that you made about the condition of financing, because certainly when working with somebody like a mortgage broker, basically the lender knows what your income, your down payment and your credit is, but the real unknown factor is the property and that's important as a lender so you could purchase a property and everything looks fine to you but then when the appraisal happens something comes up like for example an oil tank buried in the backyard and then that can make it so that no lender will want to touch it with a 10-foot pole and then you can find yourself in trouble and not able to close the property or have to go to a private lender so i certainly think that in order to protect yourself the condition of financing is important but i can certainly understand how in the heat of the moment people might waive it but perhaps like your conversation there if you kind of talk it over with a financial professional, you might reconsider your position because it definitely leaves you open to potentially being sued if you don't have that condition of financing in there and something were to occur. Yeah, I I actually knew a guy who his appraisal came back under and so he had to really scramble to find the money to come up with to pay for the house. So definitely didn't want to add any more stresses to my life. So I'm glad that my mortgage guy, you know, kind of explained all that to me. Yeah, certainly not a fun situation to be in. So so you recently left your stable full-time government job. What made you decide to take this leap of faith? And what advice do you have for others looking to build their side hustle or similar to you? Well, I'd been side hustling for three years and I was doing social media management and digital marketing for different clients. And I had been working in government for six or seven years. 
So it was a big kind of jump to jump from a stable, secure position. And I had been walking to work too, which was amazing. I didn't realize how horrible commuting was until I went to Toronto recently. And I thought, oh my God, how do people do this? So I was walking to work and, you know, doing my my work. And then my side hustle just grew too big that I was turning clients away. I was passing up really exciting opportunities. I was missing meetings that I should have been attending because I was at my full-time job. And I liked both of them. I didn't have any issues with my nine to five. I never felt like I was really angry or, or upset with my life. I loved the balance that I had with security and also the creativity of my side hustle. But I definitely got to this moment in time where I thought, okay, how do I want my life to live? How do I want to spend my day. And one of the big kind of pivotal moments that helped me shift my perspective was in a course that I helped develop for one of my clients called Exalted Life. And I was helping them create this course, not with the intention of taking it. I was doing a lot of the marketing and the technical work behind it. But I was, as I was listening to the content, there was a lot of, a lot of comments about how you shouldn't wait for, you know, something tragic or a crisis to happen in your life to make a change. Because sometimes if you wait for that, you're kind of operating out of scarcity instead of abundance. But rather, it's a good idea to make changes when you're in like a good mindset and a positive mindset so that you can think clearly. So I really had that impact my life because I didn't want to be getting to this point where I was miserable at work and then try to create something beautiful when I was in that headspace. So that made a big impact on my life. The other thing was I had saved. Again, I had been saving, saving, saving. And so I got to this point where I saved a year's salary. So I felt comfortable taking that leap into self-employment. And I also had clients lined up. So I had already created a brand for the last three years. I already had direction and I already had kind of a system that was working. So all three of those things combined let me jump into self-employment and entrepreneurship. And because I've been working with so many small business owners, I was also influenced a lot by their perspectives. So I was asking a lot of questions like, how did you do it? How did you start? What are some of your challenges? So it kind of all worked out. And yeah, so far, so good. That's an amazing story. And I really like your tip about saving a year's salary because certainly going full-time freelance rather than the nine to five gig can seem exciting and glamorous. But if you just randomly decide to quit your job one day and hope that the checks will start rolling in, then I think you're going to be sadly disappointed. So certainly it's a good idea to do it a strategic way like you and kind of plan it out in advance. Mm -hmm. It's funny because a lot of times I, I am a planner by nature. It seems like I'm not because I'm always either traveling or doing something kind of wild or, you know, an event or something really weird and random. And I have kind of random thought processes. But deep down, I'm a huge planner. I have everything in spreadsheets. I had spreadsheets for different scenarios on income scenarios and it all is very planned out. So yeah, I definitely recommend saving and having some sort of plan and strategy in place before quitting your job because it's really glamorized to just you know quit your nine to five and follow your dreams and your passions but if your dreams and your passions aren't making money you're definitely in for a rude awakening especially if you have a mortgage to pay especially with the mortgage yeah (laughs) great and my last question was travel is a passion of yours how did you manage to travel to 20 countries and pay for it all out of pocket without going into debt 
Yeah, so that was such a fun time. And again, I was it was such a whirlwind because I took four months off. I was already behind in my classes because I was part-time and I had taken six months off to live in Vancouver. So it was stressful to decide that I wanted to travel. So that's where I did most of my traveling was when I was an undergrad and I had the summer off. I should have been doing summer school, but I went to travel instead because I thought, well, when else am I going to have four months off? So one of the things that helped me was I actually got a grant to do some research in Iceland. And so I expensed my Iceland trip, my flight into Iceland, my flight out of Iceland. And that was really a good chunk of getting off of Canada into Europe. So that helped a little bit. I also, um, when I was traveling across Eastern Canada, I was working on farms through woofing and I was couch surfing and I was looking for ride shares online, Kijiji, Facebook. So I was really keeping my costs low and trying to find ways to travel without spending a lot of money. When I got to Europe, I spent a bit of money, but I was also just trying to, you know, use public transit as much as possible. I was looking for the best deals online on how to find free free activities, free events, and staying at hostels, trying to share costs with people, whether it was food or transportation. And then from, from Europe, I flew into Asia, and I actually had a friend who lived in Indonesia. So I stayed with her and her boyfriend. His mom lived in Hong Kong. So when we went to Hong Kong, I stayed with them. So I was really just looking at my network and my my connections to see how I could keep my costs low. And that was through keeping my costs for accommodations low and also food. It also helps that I'm a vegetarian and I think you are too, right? Yes. Have you been a vegetarian your entire life similar to me? No, I've been a vegetarian since I was 12. So pretty much my entire life. I think I should have been a vegetarian since I was a child because I was such a picky eater and I hated meat. I've always hated the idea of meat, the thought of it. But coming from a Mexican family, that was just not even an option. Eventually, like years and years of torture for my mom, I just stopped one day. And I think it really actually helped our relationship because I was so picky because I just didn't want to eat it. But anyways, being a vegetarian helped me keep my costs low. I'm sure there's a lot of math, you know, out there that can prove how being a vegetarian is cheaper than being a meat eater. I don't know if people will want to argue that, but I think I can win that argument. The other thing was I was always looking for deals for flights too, because that was the most expensive part. So I was really flexible. Sometimes I changed my my dates because I could get a way cheaper flight. So yeah, it's definitely possible. I was also tracking all of my every dollar that was going out, I was tracking it. So I made sure that I wouldn't use more money than I had. It's possible to travel for really cheap. There's tons of blogs and resources available if anyone is interested in doing some some intense traveling. And I'm sure you used a spreadsheet to cr- keep track of everything, right? <laughs> yeah, I had a I had an app. I don't remember what it was called, and it was five years ago now. And that app could track everything, could email it to yourself as a spreadsheet. And then when I got home, I looked at my spreadsheet. But I was also looking at it like on the road a little bit. Great. Well, Liz, it's been wonderful to having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, there's a few projects on the go. My blog, Ambitious Adulting, I constantly try to have updated content and interviews with finance professionals. And I'm doing a lot of events in Hamilton and the surrounding area to simplify personal finance for Canadian millennials. So I bring experts together and we try to have a really cool, engaging 
interactive time at my events because I know that personal finance can be really intimidating for people and it can be really overwhelming. So I'm really trying to break down those barriers in the finance industry by, you know, hosting these events that are engaging and interactive and fun, but also educational and useful. They're all going to be listed on ambitiousadulting.com and on my social media, Ambitious Adults. That's where I keep everything updated. Great. And certainly if you're in the Hamilton area or surrounding areas, be sure to check out Liz's events because I find there's not enough events going on in the Hamilton area if you don't live in Toronto. Yeah, that's definitely true. We're a little bit neglected out here in Toronto, but I'm I'm such a doer. I when I think like, oh, I wish we could have those events or I wish those people came here. I'm like, you know what? No one's doing it. Let's get this done. Like, I can't be sitting around waiting for things to happen. Just yeah, that's, do it. That's the right attitude. So yeah, great. Thanks again for being on the show. It was wonderful to have you. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at Writer at gmail.com, or you can call or text me at 647-867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.